On April the 18th of 2010, a Guatemalan immigrant by the name of Hugo Alfredo Taliax was brutally murdered on the streets of Queens, New York. What makes it notable, this particular sacrifice, was that it was a sacrifice of sorts. Hugo was jumping to the aid of a woman he did not know who was being assaulted by a man with a knife. When Ugo jumped in to help her, the attacker turned his attention to Ugo, let the lady go, she immediately ran away, and Ugo was stabbed to death. Well, not immediately to death, but to death nonetheless. Surveillance cameras in the area, as they were being checked later, showed the intervention that Ugo provided. It also showed in horrifying kind of way the minutes that followed that where no less than 20 different people walked by the body of the quickly dying Guatemalan immigrant on the streets of New York. One man stopped simply to take a picture of him. Eighteen others stopped and looked at him and went on their way, and one man stopped and, seeing that something was wrong, reached down and started shaking Ugo's body vigorously. But when he saw the pool of blood, he dropped him and he walked away. By the time the paramedics got there 15 minutes later, Ugo was long dead. Now, in our society... We have dumbed down a term from the scriptures for people like Ugo. We refer to him and others like him as good Samaritans. Now, I I choose my words carefully. When I say that we've dumbed down a biblical term for people like that, it is not intended to slight Ugo or others like him who jump in to aid somebody in a tough situation. But I'm afraid that our interpretation of this particular parable that Jesus tells, by the way, it's in Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to go ahead and turn there. We'll be there soon. But um, we, we take this parable that Jesus told and we want to take the, what we believe to be the heart of it and then apply it to other people like Ugo in the story that I just told. But in doing so, we reveal something of ourselves. And I'm afraid that maybe we have missed one of the main points that Jesus gives us in this parable. This is one of the most difficult sermons that a pastor has to preach. It's the one where he's talking about something in Scripture that everybody knows. And this is one of those parables that I probably could get by without even reading the parable because most of us in here know it well enough that we could follow along just from memory. But that is a very dangerous way for us to come to study Scripture at any time. Just because we're familiar with it does not mean that we have extracted everything from it that is helpful for us in life. And so as we take this next step, into the parables of Jesus and we look at how he has truth embedded in these that comes on a slant for us. 
that truth that we probably need to hear straight up, but we might not be willing to hear it straight up. And so Jesus, in a masterful, masterful way, comes at it from the side. The parable of the Good Samaritan. As we go through this here in just a few moments, I'm going to invite you to find yourself somewhere in the three main characters that we look at today. And let's just go ahead and jump in. We're going to, we're going to begin reading in verse tw- uh, 30. And so I'd invite you, Luke chapter 10 in verse 30, where it reads this way. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, that is the lawyer, the Old Testament, we would call him scholar, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. As we come to this passage today, the, the first character I want you to see is maybe the one that we all love to hate. It's really not just one, it's two people in this parable. It is the priest and the Levite, but before we talk about them a whole lot, let me ask you this question. Let's just go ahead and see what we can wear of this parable on the front side of it here. Who are the priests and the Levites of our day? I've already kind of given you a little bit of an insight into how we might answer that. I know that one of the things that I live with as a pastor is this, this sense of distrust among the general public about pastors. I told you before, I used to play golf a lot uh, before I moved out here and had to work for a living. And um, when uh, I would play golf often in golf tournaments down the Rio Grande Valley, I I had a friend who played a lot and uh, he'd always pull me into his team on tournaments. And he was in the construction industry. He was a plumber by trade. And so we were always playing golf tournaments that were frequented by these uh, craftsmen. And I always hated to tell them because they would sooner or later, every one of them would say, so what do you do for a living? Um, I'm a preacher. <clears throat> and it was always interesting to watch how they responded to me in that. I told my new neighbors not long ago, they asked me what I did and I said, I'll tell you, but I don't want you to hold it against me. You know why I talk like that? Because all of us know preachers. And a lot of the preachers that a lot of us know are the ones that are high-profile failures on television and radio. And so there is that slant of the job that uh, we do that sometimes people go, I don't know about you. Well, here's a good point of information for you. If you don't trust a preacher too much, uh, that's not new to your generation. 
These group of people that we're talking about here were not necessarily the ones that everybody would have looked to with great pride and admiration. But having said that, the priests and the Levites of the first century and time in which Jesus tells this story uh, is a group of people that represented the professional religionists. They were the ones who oversaw the sacrifice and the sacrificial system at the temple in Jerusalem. And the fact that we find them in this story that Jesus tells as they're going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, a a, a drop in elevation of some 3,300 feet over an 18-mile stretch of road. These guys are going from their duty at the temple down to Jericho where some 12,000 of their people lived because there were just too many of them to live in Jerusalem. So they would commute back and forth to work. We would say that the priests and the Levites of our day are the pastors and the professional religionists like seminary professors and those kind of people. But let me just submit to you that the pool is bigger and deeper than just that. As a matter of fact, it might very well be that we find ourselves in this group. The priests, the Levites, traveling down a dangerous road. This is a story that could very well have come right out of the headlines of the day Jesus told it. This particular road was chock full of danger. It was heavily traveled, but at the same time it was incredibly dangerous because thieves would hide. And and an elevation change like that in that short a period of time or of distance uh, provided them lots of blind corners to hide behind and caves to hide in. And people, as they were traveling to Jerusalem for their religious or trade activities, they were easy targets on that road. That road towards religious expression seems to be dangerous, not just then, but now. And these guys represent that callous spirit of religion. Who are today's priests and Levites? Let me give you a couple of examples maybe that will say it better. They are the ones who trade out the function of Christianity in favor of the form of Christianity. In other words, that call that we have to be salt and light in a very dark and dangerous world, easily that call for us becomes more about doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. We trade the function for the form. Another way to say that is that this group of priests and Levites in our days may very well be considered those who elevate churchianity over Christianity. Another way to say that would be the ones who go to do their worship thing at church and retire to the restaurants to treat their waiters as if they're subhuman. There are a lot of priests and Levites in our day in American churches. They're the ones who prefer the letter of God over the love of God. Let me explain that. I know that I need to explain that because we're Baptists and we fight about the letter of God's law. We fight, we kill each other over not saying something right about Scripture. I think Jesus gives us the best example of this. 
Remember that incident in the life of Jesus where he's doing his thing with his disciples and this crowd brings him this woman who had been captured in the act of adultery. Remember that? Now, the, the letter keepers of the law were the ones who brought him because they're after him, first of all. That's a whole other series of sermons. But they bring this woman to Jesus, and the letter keepers are the ones who say, what should we do with her? They know what to do with her. They know that the letter of the Old Testament law says that she's to be killed for that. Uh, conveniently, they don't worry about the love behind God's law. And we know that because they don't bring the guy who was ca- captured in the process either. So they want to put Jesus to the test. What are you going to do with her? And Jesus knows the letter of the law, but he also represents the love of God. And so his response to them is what? Killer? Well, sort of. Go back and read that story. It sort of is killer, but he puts this thing on there that says, those of you who are without sin, you be the one to kill her. See, there's the love part that comes into it. He gets the letter, but he gets the love. And so priests and Levites, whether it's in this parable in Jesus' day or in our day in Baptist churches, priests and Levites have lost the compassion that drives this whole parable. We know that by the way this parable reads. They're going down. They've already done their duty. They're going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. They've already done what they had to do. Ceremonial uncleanness is not part of the equation now because they've already done that. They they could have been afraid, well, if we touch this body, well, he looks like he's dead. Of course, we're looking from a distance, of course, because we don't want to get so close that we might get dirty. And after all, mom's holding supper for me at home. I know that's reading a little bit into it, but not too much probably. And so they see it, but it doesn't move them. Well, it doesn't move them. It moves them to the other side of the road where it's clean. Those are the professional religionists of our day. You may find yourself there. It's hard for me not to be negative about this group because Jesus is negative about this group. As a matter of fact, this is the very group that doesn't like enough what he's saying that they're going to end up killing him outside the walls of Jerusalem. In just a short period of time after this. So if you happen to be a priest or a Levite, a professional religionist in our time, here's a good anchor for you. Jesus did not die for an institution or a system. Let me stop again. Let that settle in. Jesus did not die for an institution or a system. He died for people. And he did it because he was motivated by compassion. And love for people. It's okay if you hold the office of a professional religionist. It is not okay if you lose your compassion. That's the first group. The second group that we find here is represented by this Samaritan. Now, here's, let me go back to what I was saying about the first century people as they would have heard this. Because, uh, well, this shows us the first slant There's two that I'm going to highlight today. There may very well be more than two in this particular parable, but there's two different truths that Jesus kind of throws in there with a curveball. 
Here's the first one. These people would have probably been okay with the priest and the Levite being the bad guys. I, I don't know that they would have been totally okay with that, but you know that distrust goes way back. So they probably would have heard this and heard, okay, the priest missed it, the Levite missed it, and so in their thinking and the way stories were told in that day and the way comparisons were made in that day, they naturally expected that the hero to this story was going to be an Israelite because that triad seemed to go together in these kind of stories. There's a priest and there's a Levite and they're both good for nothing, but the Israelite, he's the one who saves the day. But Jesus catches them slant. And he throws in, of all people, a Samaritan. There is no way that crowd would have expected him to put a a Samaritan into a good role there. They would have preferred, if anybody was going to be the Samaritan, it'd be the guy that got beat up. Samaritans were worse than dogs. In the Jewish mindset of the first century, these were the people who polluted the race. By intermarrying with conquered peoples when they were left behind, when they were conquered as a people. They had a whole different worship system. Everything counter to a good Jew was wrapped up in that word that they snarled out, Samaritan. I don't think they could have thought of anybody less likely to be good than a Samaritan. So let me just ask you, who are the Samaritans in our lives? So many parts of this sermon are really difficult for me. Here's part of it for me. I think that we're pretty good people. Not me. I know I'm not a good person, but I think a lot of you. I, I think a lot of you, and I think a lot of you are good people. Am I right about that? Some of you going like the guy that plumber guy told me one time. I said, you're a good man. He said, no, I'm just like you. I'm evil. Wow. Well, it's biblically he's right. But I think that we're, I don't talk about us as a church, I think we're good people. We, we care about people. I, I'll say it this way. I cannot imagine any of you seeing somebody laid out on the side of the road and not stopping to help them. I, I think enough of you that I, I think you've proven to me that you would do that. In this circumstance. But see, that's a problem for us because we hear a parable like this, and in our hearts, we kind of do believe we're good people. Now, you don't want to say it because that makes you prideful, so you just let me say it for you. You're good people. But it makes it hard for us to find ourselves here because we kind of want, we, well, no, I'm, it's not hard for me to find myself. I am the Good Samaritan, I'm the hero. I'm awesome. So I put it, who is the Samaritan in your life? Who is it that you wouldn't want touching you? So that's why if you happen to see the title for this sermon out there, I call it the good terrorist. I'll just twist that a little bit for you. If you, I got my granddaughter over here today. If you come up and you take her life, you better be sure you and I are fixing to get it on. Does that communicate to you? You kill her when I'm not around, you can be sure. I'm coming. 
That's not very preachery. I get that, but it sure is pretty honest. So who is it that might be that person in your life that if you saw them on the side of the road, you in fact would be the priest and the Levite because you would see them and go, I ain't helping you. See, that's a little easier to find ourselves in that, isn't it? So this Samaritan, the most unlikely of heroes, comes from a motive of compassion and provides extravagant care. I look back through that. I'm not going to take the time right now. It's verses 33 through 35. You can go back and do it. But look at how much he gives into that situation for that guy. He interrupts his schedule. He takes a chance. I guess he's maybe not too worried about being unclean like the priest or Levite might have been, but that was just an excuse anyway. He spends money on him. He uses his own resources on him. Here's a good truth for you. Um, compassion drives you to invest in people. If I, could, if I could write that and tattoo it across everybody's forehead so when we saw each other, that's the first thing we saw, I might do that. Compassion is an investment. It moves us to invest in people. And that investment is costly. One of the things we miss in the spin up to this in the first century context is one of the, one of the groups of people that were least trusted by the average Jew is an innkeeper. And so not only does he give the resources he has, but he takes this guy to this charlatan of an innkeeper, potentially, and he says, you take care of him, and whatever you spend on him, I'll pay you later. Hello, that's called a blank check. And yet he does it. What motivates a person that way? And the answer here is the one word that the whole parable turns on. It's the word compassion. And we've used it before, and I, I told you every time we get to it, I'm going to stop and highlight what it is because it is a thoroughly divine word. It is used in the New Testament only about Jesus or by Jesus in parables like this. And in every instance where it's used, the person who models this compassion it's, it's, a, it's, a, an, it's more than an emotion, but it is an emo- it, it starts from deep within them. It's the collective term for guts. And they are moved so deeply at the gut level that it forces them into action on behalf of the person that they're dealing with. That's the word. That's the parable. And so the picture here of the Samaritan, if you happen to be this one, you're that person in Christian life that the rest of us say, oh man, that, that's a great person. They're just one big heart walking around waiting on somebody to step on them. You know people like that? They just, everything they do, they just breed compassion for people. And those are the people, right, we're picking committees, okay? Those are the people, you don't want that person on the, on the finance committee. Okay, because they're going to give away every penny you ever have for hurting people. That's not a bad thing. Just don't put them on the wrong committee. That's all I'm saying with that. A lot of us are that way. We, we love, we care about people and we're moved 
in compassion for them, we're the good Samaritan. But this is where I said that we've dumbed down our biblical term and our secular culture has picked it up. Whatever else you want to say about the Guatemalan immigrant who helped that other person, if he wasn't motivated by a divine compassion that pressed him into service, it wasn't along the lines of the good Samaritan. Now, clearly, this is the person that we want to emulate, right? I mean, isn't that what Jesus says in verse 37? The last part of it, he says, go and do likewise. Clearly, that's part of what it means for us in looking at this parable. But I don't believe, hear me very carefully now because we're going into uncharted territory now. I don't believe that Jesus tells this parable primarily to tell us to be like the Good Samaritan. Here's a reason. I'll give you several reasons before it's all said and done. But for one thing, he doesn't need the priest or the Levite in this story to make that point. And for those of you who have been coming on Wednesday nights, as we look back and a little bit deeper into these things, as we preach them on Sunday, we come back on Wednesday night and talk about them some more. You want to be part of that? Building right outside here Wednesday night at 615. You're welcome to come. We We kind of pull it apart. Here's one of the things I have said week after week after week in that study. Context is critical. So what is the context? Maybe a better way to ask this question is why why do so many Christians struggle with being the good Samaritan? I think it's maybe because we miss the point. If all we take from this parable is that example that we're supposed to follow, okay, I should be like this guy. I don't need God to do good things for people. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm a heretic or anything like that, but our world is full of people who are practicing atheists who are great humanitarians. You don't have to be a Christian to do good things for people. This Samaritan, there's no evidence of this guy being one of those chosen people of God. He's a Samaritan which says its own thing, except that he operates out of compassion. And there's that divine word. I think Jesus has more in this than just go out and do good stuff for people. By the the way, we're now into the third character. Why is this parable here in the first place? For those of you who are part of that study, I I would encourage you to go spend a little time digging on, or all of us, to dig on the context here. What is it that Jesus is trying to get across? Maybe one of the reasons that we struggle with compassionate care is because we don't identify enough with the guy who got rolled. See, I think there's the one that we all have to find ourselves being in this parable. It's very possible. We got a bunch of priests and Levites in here. It's very probable that we've got a bunch of good Samaritans in here. But the reality is, all of us are the guy who got beat up on the side of the road. Let me see if I can justify that for you and we'll be done. I told you already, this parable could have gotten plucked right out of the headlines of the day Jesus told it. We had this picture of a guy who gives of himself into a culture that has soundly rejected him as being human. 
Nobody gets compassion like people who have received compassion. I'll tell you, that's a big statement. And I think it drives what Jesus is saying. And we've got to get the context right. And so here's the slant for it. I skipped this when we started because I wanted to save it for emphasis now. Why did Jesus tell this parable? Go back with me to verse um, 25. And behold, a lawyer... Okay, now let me stop for a second, okay? For those of you who are like anti-lawyer, okay? They're good folks. Some of them are. Most, I've never known what, he's a lawyer. Um, But this is not the kind of lawyer you're thinking. That's what I'm driving at, okay? This is an Old Testament guy. I mean, we would call him Old Testament, but he would call him law, okay? He is a specialist in dealing with the Old Testament law. Now, he's a smart guy. Okay? He wouldn't be in that position if he was not a smart guy. And he comes to Jesus. And if we take it at face value, he comes with a valid question. But we can't take it at face value because uh, Luke gives us some insight. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. His motives are not clean. Hear it this way. This guy is a professional arguer. And so now he's got an argument. And he throws it to Jesus' feet, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let me stop right there. Now, there are those who would look at this parable, and they say, well, this parable is all about the next question, which is where the guy says, and who is my neighbor? And we'll get to that text here in just a second. But I want to make sure we're putting the pieces together here. I'm running out of time. He comes in and he says, I'm going to put you to the test. In other words, hear me very carefully now. In other words, he comes in and he has already diminished the person of Jesus by taking the lead in the attempt to belittle him. In other words... I'm the smartest man in the room. That's a few weeks ago. And I'm going to let all these people around us know because I'm going to tear you apart. So here's my question. How do I inherit eternal life? What he didn't realize was he was, in fact, not the smartest man in the room. And Jesus answered him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, and he gives a great answer. As a matter of fact, he gives an answer that Jesus gives in other places, and he quotes the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19. He takes what the whole set of the law, 600 plus laws, and he pulls them down to those two. You put God first in your life, and you love people. Great answer. Matter of fact, I would say that's spot on the right answer for that period of time. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now what I want to say to him is, if I was Jesus, I would have said parenthetically, fat chance, bozo, you're not going to pull that off. How do I inherit eternal life? God first, 
People matter. Okay, get after it. How's that working out for you? And the answer is, well, you know, I, I was doing good with that God first thing until I took my third breath after I said it, and then I had trouble. And so he gives the right answer, and Jesus nails him, go do it. And then the guy, because after all, he is the smartest man in the room, desiring to just himself, uh, justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And now Jesus gets into the parable. You see, the question that drives the entire thing is, how do I inherit eternal life? And unless, hear me very carefully here, if you do not become the man on the side of the road, totally in need of help, you cannot be saved. You see the slant that Jesus gives? It's easy for us to say, be the good Samaritan. And we walk out and we make ourselves the smartest man in the room. I'm going to do good to people. And there's a poor unfortunate soul and I'm going to do good to them. Aren't I awesome? But the reality is that all of us are the guy on the side of the road. And we've been failed by religion. And we've been ignored by important people. And we might have even been helped by some people who gave us what they had, but it just wasn't enough. How does one gain entry to heaven? It is only by Jesus Christ. You agree with that? <laughs> that was a week. <laughs> it is only... Through Jesus Christ, you place your faith in him, your trust in him. Your sin is just like mine. Now I'm back to that plumber friend of mine and his smart aleck comment. You are wicked. I love you and all that stuff, but you're just like me. Your heart is given over to wickedness. We're born in sin. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you a person in need. It makes you the person on the side of the road. And fortunately, Jesus Christ himself, who is the ultimate good Samaritan, by the way, the one rejected by these very religious leaders, is the one who reaches down and says to you, I'm going to give you life. So who are you in this parable? Is it possible that we have set up entire systems and called it compassion. And yet we've missed that critical point of being recipients of compassion. Nobody gives compassion to other people like the person who has received it. You won't receive it until you're needy and you acknowledge that. Let's pray. And so, Lord, once again we find ourselves written all over the sheets of this book. And we thank you first for the incredible love and compassion that you show us. And we thank you that even though we are that guy on the side of the road and we are hopelessly dying, that you reach down because of your love and your compassion and you help us up and you give us life and then you charge us to be that good Samaritan. Having received, we then go. 
So help us to be honest enough with ourselves today to see where we've just circumvented the process and we jump in and out of helping people the way we think is best and leave you beside the way. Show us our need. Break our will. And love us to life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.